Hello, everyone. Welcome to Too Busy to Flush. I'm JR. And I'm Molly. Ian, if this is your first time joining us, thanks for being here. If it's your 123rd time joining us, we need to send you another sticker. Um, we thanks don't, for being here. Yeah, thanks for being here. We don't plan our conversations. I have no idea what Molly wants to talk about. And um, frequently, this is the only time we really have a chance to connect during the week. In we a raise, substantive way. Yes, because we raise four kids. And um, I work in and out of the home. And, um, and sometimes out of town. Sometimes out of town, yep. And it's just one of those things. So, uh, that said... Um, what do we want to talk about right now? Yeah, what do we want to talk about <laughs> right now? I'm trying to think if there's something to bring up, like, at home. But my brain is just... we. So here's... Here's how our life has gone this week. It, yeah. <clears throat> I've been working, you know, I worked up on the mountain Monday through Wednesday, ski mountain, ski mountain uh, on patrol. And then uh, I get a text from my father-in-law today who says, hey, um, the rancher we lease property from says there's elk on the property. So now my time And this and I is are, official hunting season is over. This is called shoulder, shoulder season. season. Yeah. So it's private. And you can still fill your tags. Yeah. You can only shoot something on private and you can only uh, harvest a cow or antlerless. You can't harvest a bull. Okay, that's super interesting to me because aren't the cows pregnant now? Yes, and there is um, there is uh, some debate over the ethics of shooting a pregnant of shooting a pregnant cow. cow. You don't know, and they're not super, super far pregnant. along yet. Because when um, is I suppose they wouldn't be born for a couple more months, but I don't even know. And I didn't. I don't have my phone in front of me. I don't know the gestation of an elk. I don't know, but Certainly I have... Certainly longer than a human. Yeah, I've heard stories of, bigger. you know, when you go to gut them, you're gutting out embryos too. So yeah. I'm not super excited about that, but I also recognize inflation, poor meat product, and bad ingredients, and all of the things we're okay, getting. Okay, speaking of protein. meat, tell everyone, you guys, <clears throat> I, I think I would probably without a doubt say that the book the end of craving which we have talked about over and over and over on this podcast was in the top three most influential books that i read in 2022 and the other two just because we're christians i would probably say we're christian books but i can't think of them off the top of my head (laughs) (laughs) um but I have referred, it has actually changed the way that I think about eating and feeding my family. And the author is a man named Mark Schatzker, whom we discovered from listening to Sean Stevenson, who has the number one podcast in health and nutrition on Apple and Spotify. It's called The Model Health Show, catching you up if you haven't been with us for long. And I actually re-listened, so... When was that super cold streak? Was that right before, the week before Christmas, when it was bitterly cold mm-hmm. in Billings? And the van got diesel frozen. The up diesel the gelled up in the in the engine block, so it, it... Fuel filter. The van wouldn't start when it was, it was beneath 20 Minus below. 30 Fahrenheit-ish. And that's before wind chill. <clears throat> and right. so anyway, JR did all these things to try to get it going. <clears throat> the ski mountain was closed for the day because it was dangerously cold. And I ended up leaving the kids with my parents and driving up to Red Lodge to get JR. 
And because it was in the Subaru, I spent like $10 in gas and it wasn't a big deal. Uh, I'm, you guys, I'm, as a very aside from an aside from an aside, I giggle every time I fill my Subaru with gas still. I've had it since mid-October. And just the other day, I filled it up and it was $27. And I was flashing back to a moment when I had a couple of Titus's friends in our Toyota Sequoia, which I drove before that, which got 13 miles to the gallon compared to the Subaru's over 30. And this friend of Titus's, whose parents drive a Suburban, so he's familiar with this. And maybe his ki- maybe he and his siblings did this, but he sat there. It hit about $75. And then he just sat there in the back of the Sequoia watching the gas gauge go the the tank go up and counting the money that I got to for filling the tank of gas and it got to like $94 or something and I was like stop you're stressing me out stop counting up how much money I'm spending on a single tank of gas anyway uh it's fun other than the fact that the kids fight almost every time we get in the car over limited elbow space and who has to sit in the middle of the back seat of a tight vehicle so anyway I drove it's not up, as tight as you would think. I drove like up to get JR, which is an hour drive up there, and I had just enough time to listen to a new recording of a podcast that Sean Stevenson had done with Mark Schatzker, and it reminded me, this reminds me, that I had meant to share that with everybody, so I will make a note and send that episode with you. And He kind of goes over some of the same things that he did in that longer three-hour one that we got so excited about, but then he enters new introduces new information, some of which comes from his book called The Dorito Effect, and some of which is from The End of Craving that he had not shared during that really long podcast episode. By the way, I'll give you I'll give this away, this little nugget. He researches the introduction of Doritos to the American market. And the if you speak Spanish, you may, like me, have never thought about the fact that Dorito has oro in it, which is Spanish for gold, and ito is a diminutive. So if you have mamacita, that's little mama, cute little mama, sweet little mama. You add ito or ita to something, or cito or cita to a Spanish word to mean cute little or sweet little, or it's kind of an affectionate term, uh, abuelita, my, my little grandma. And the Doritos are little nuggets of gold. And he talks about how that was a real pivotal moment in American food experiences because that was the introduction of artificial flavors that hit the spot with people. And before that, you could buy orange or strawberry flavored soda or gum, but it didn't taste like the real thing. It didn't trick your taste buds. And so the beginning of tricking your taste buds goes back to the invention of Doritos. Anyway, that was a a rabbit trail with a rabbit trail within it. And going back to the original question, my mom gave JR another Mark Schatzker book, his first one on food, and it's called Steak. Do you want to talk a little bit about where you are so far in that book? Yeah, I can talk a little bit about it. I'm not super far. I'm only um, partway through the second chapter, and he's currently in, uh, or third chapter? Second chapter. He's currently in France. The introduction is pretty heavy because, or not heavy, but he spends quite a bit of time explaining why he wrote the book. And 
it was a culmination of a couple different things, but basically people are like, this is the best steak I've ever had. And then he went to go try to have a couple good steaks and some of them tasted like warmed over tap water or, uh, you know, salted tap water or whatever you want to call them. There was just no flavor. So then he starts, he starts wondering what makes a good steak. And uh, he was assigned a writing project for Condé Nast. Hmm. And it basically resulted in him traveling around the world, which he then took the opportunity as well to say, well, this just is my opportunity to eat steak all around the world and maybe figure out what makes for a really good steak. So currently he is in France. And so far I have learned, he spent the first chapter in Texas. Uh, so far I have learned it has nothing to do with being 100% grass fed. It has nothing to do with the marbling or the fat content. And it's still just a big question mark. <laughs> hopefully you get the right answer. So hopefully we find it. He spent a lot of the second chapter now talking about um, ingredients and man's, um, man's meaning humans, uh, propensity and need for steak and protein and meat in the history of us being a meat-eating species. Uh, so it's super fascinating. So tonight my plan is um, hopefully swing in. There's a little teeny town where this uh, rancher um, and I, I shouldn't I shouldn't under downplay this. He he comes from the largest landowning family in Montana. Um, so he's got a, they've got a, the family's got a lot of land. Um, but anyway, he lives outside a little town called Martinsdale. And inside the little town of Martinsdale is a little bar called the Mint Bar. And all of the meat is provided by his family. Hmm. So my plan is to go to the Mint Bar tonight for dinner and have steak. <laughs> and see if it's like... See hmm. how his steak is. Because, you know, we... Because a lot of it's in preparation. I, a lot of it's in preparation. His point is there's something... Shasker's point, hopefully, <clears throat> eventually, probably, is probably. there's going to be something in the genetics. Yeah. And, and how... So... Yeah, he's talked about, I mean, we've talked about the Nazi fashion, fascination with the aurochs, uh, formerly extinct uh, uh, cow bovine species. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm curious because, I, you know, some of this, now I'm curious. Now all I really want is, is to try this steak because we, I've had some really good ones. Uh, the Ribbon Chop House here in Billings had a ribeye that was just, you know, it just kind of knocked you. It's like, that's phenomenal. And then I remember one time... Molly prepared, uh, we prepared some steaks from a buck that I had shot. Uh, my first ever harvest was a big buck up at deer. Up in the, For buck those of you guys who don't know. Uh, mule, mule deer up in the crazies, mountain deer. And I still like to this day was like, that is one of the best pieces of meat I've ever had. I have zero recollection um, of that. And then I have had elk steak and I've been like, eh, you know, um, and then we had there's a there's a restaurant in town called uh, the Buffalo Block named after the Buffalo Block bricks that used to pave streets. Um, the entire it's on a it's on a street here in town that the entire street used to be paved with these with these blocks. And a lot of money's got into this place to be one of the you know up there with the Mortons and Ruth's Chris and you know high end steakhouses. Um, and they've got a lot of high end beef, aged beef, fancy beef, all these things. Um, and I've had a fantastic steak there the last two times we've gone. This last time, though, it was like, no. 
it pr- tasted. I, I was wishing. Yeah. I had more salt to put on. Yeah, the like you, like like he said, it you know it tasted like a little bit like salty tap water. Like there was just really not a lot of flavor, an overcharring, uh, no flavor in the meat. And it's kind of like wow, like that. That's for the price. I mean, you should be having, you should be getting your socks blown off. So it just makes me all curious. It's just all curious now. So now I'm like, I've been craving. Like you made steak bites last night, which which was good. But now I'm just kind of like, ooh, I want to try. But steak bites, you guys, steak bites was actually a great recipe. I will send Jr. the steak bites recipe link that I use, and I do it with almost. We almost exclusively eat wild game, just because that's what we have, and. Um, sorry, I'm writing steak bites recipe to send to JR, which is why I'm having trouble thinking and talking at the same time. I, it, I don't find the flavor consistently knock your socks off of wild game steaks. And I think it's really hard to do them well. And so I chop them into double, it's about probably one inch by one inch maybe one and a half inch cubes. And then when they, they cook down, it's two bites for an adult to ma- to eat one. And it's marinated in a mixture of basil and Worcestershire and soy sauce and olive oil and salt and pepper, basically parsley. And it imparts a lot of flavor and they're pretty tender. And I cook them in batches in the air fryer. So they they were a little overcooked last night, a little bit dry, but Ooh, ideally... No way, they came apart super nice. Ideally, they're still a little bit medium rare medium in the center and tender but kind of crispy on the outside in an ideal world uh doing enough to feed our whole family makes them a little bit mushy because they don't get quite as much air circulation as would be ideal anyway yeah so i did steak bites last night but it's not the same as a big juicy steak that's really crispy and flavored no. and whatnot not no, and some are great and some are terrible and it's interesting because he goes into the history of how we went from certain kinds of cattle and we got our steaks to the commodity steak that we have now and pretty um, much 99 percent of all of um the u.s is on a commo- restaurants are on a commodity steak um which is interesting to me because uh i'm not sure how this ranch family uh, produces and finishes their steaks, but they provide all their own beef for the steaks. So, for the place. So yeah, like, oh, you know, part is- of me, <laughs> you, we have feedlots here in Billings, and we used to, I don't know if I've talked about this on our show before. This is turning out to be a food episode. I, on when, when we drive to the little town of Laurel close to us, we drive past a feedlot, and the cows are just standing knee-deep in black muck which is whatever they don't have a, a blade of fresh grass near them they have nothing because they're do. being finished on grain yes on corn I and just, grain but here's the thing you all every time you drive by titus notices titus is 12 you guys he's like every time you drive by these cows have nothing to do they're just standing there so there's always a couple cows humping each other <laughs> <laughs> which is absolutely true they just have nothing else to do there's no there's no shade for them in the summer mm. uh and but in most of montana when you drive past where cows are being raised they're at least on maybe if they're maybe they're grain finished, but they're at least on fields and things for most of their lives. So here's what Schatzker says typically happens. Um, 
the USDA has their prime, has their grading scale for what kind of meat you get. And it's purely based on marbling. That's it. Hmm. How much fat comes through the cut of meat? Because the perception is, hey, more marbling equals better flavor. When, in fact, depending on which camp you talk to, that's not true. Yeah. And Chatsker even has two different steaks. And he's like, that's, that's not true. Marbling, marbling really plays no, no difference at all. But one of the other outcomes of the USDA grading system now is the, um, the fact that uh, aged meat is not even considered worthy of grading. All the, all the commodity beef that we're eating is like less than two years old. Yeah. So what happens is they, they grow them, they raise them in a free range like we got in Montana when we look everywhere else. And then they're all packed up, shipped to feedlots to fatten up and finish. When they're two. When they're like, yeah, a year and a half or two. Um, and that's kind of how the process works. Which is funny because he's in France right now with a Michelin, five-star Michelin chef, um, who was referred to him by the guy who own, who has the most stars to his name ever. He owns a, a variety of schools. Jean-Georges. Yeah, something like that. Anyway, um, he's with this chef now and the chef is talking about aged beef. And aged as in fact, aged, aged as older, in old cows, older not animals. aged as in aged right. in a refrigerator. Dry or wet aged. I'm not talking about it. that kind of aging. I'm talking like the age older, of the cow. older cows, you know, five, six, seven, eight, ten year old cows. Um, and so it's just it's really interesting to see it's really interesting. <laughs> steak is gonna forever be ruined for me now because now I know that pretty much everywhere you go, you're gonna get a commodity steak. So just go find the cheapest one. <laughs> Add salt and pepper and be done. Um, anyway, so now I'm now I'm kind of curious to. Um, now it's all just fascinating to me. So, um, yes, yeah, so the feedlots that we're seeing here are typically where they go to get finished on grain after they've spent the first part of their lives running around in an open field. Yeah, I don't know how it plays. I I don't know how it uh, it it impacts whether or not you can be like grass-fed or whatever. Now, Schatzker did have an entirely grass-fed cow. There are places that will say grass-fed, grass-finished. There is. Schatzker did have an entirely grass-fed cow and said he, would, he did not like it at all. Hmm. Didn't work with his flavor profile. And the guy who raised him said a lot of people don't like pure grass-raised beef. Yeah, because we've been trained to want... We've been trained to want the grain My dad even finished, had a friend the, the who corn finish, bought a piece of land near Harden, which is a little over an hour east of Billings where we live and it's getting into the plains great plains and very flat Yellowstone River runs through it he bought this property almost exclusively for deer hunting and raised corn there to have something to do with the property and the deer just ate corn all the time and apparently that deer tasted like beef because it was corn corn fed and corn finished wild game which so fit, you know, which fits the flavor profile that we've. Oops, Jared just spilled his water. That fits the flavor profile that we've kind of been trained <clears throat> to want out of our food. Which is why some people don't really like uh, the taste of, you know, the quote unquote gamey is of wild game. Of wild game is simply the fact that it's not. It's literally finished on anything wild. Like there's no. Yeah, they're eating grass. Fancy. They're eating grass. They're eating pine needles. They're eating leaves off the trees. Sagebrush. That's why mule deer down on the flats doesn't taste great sometimes. Yeah. Because they like sagebrush. But that mule deer that we got at the cabin was just unreal delicious to me. I just 
You oh. just you thought it was extra delicious because it was the first thing you'd ever killed to eat. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, maybe maybe Shatsker's going to get to that. There's the emotional. I had a friend tell me we were talking about food. Oh, the artist I mixed on last week, the hip hop artist. Mm-hmm. We were out to lunch and we were talking about the preparation of food because I think somehow we landed on this book. And he said he believes that it has uh, less to do with the ingredients and the components and more to do with the passion behind the person preparing it. Yeah, that's that's possible. Oh, okay. I don't know. I don't know either. <clears throat> um, okay, so taking a little bit of a, a left-hand turn on this conversation, the now that we've talked about food for a long time, the on our Telegram channel, I can't remember who. I don't have my phone in front of me, and but somebody raised a question of they're preparing for a Bible study. I'll pull it up right now. I okay. think it was either. Uh, I think it was, it was maybe Rachel. I want to feel like it was Rachel. Uh, yeah. Preparing for a Bible study on Ephesians two, and there's so many great things in that passage to discuss. But she knows that people are going to be fired up about the question of predestination in there. And she had some great, she had some questions about what people on there thought. And we got some great responses. And I, I a hundred percent believe that the Bible teaches that God uh, called us before the foundation of the world each individual person who would be saved. And I think it was Eric who had this very eloquent, long thing that he took the time to write. And I agreed with all everything he said. But that that God God gives everyone opportunity to turn toward him. But we in our sinful nature will not respond to him unless he softens our hearts, opens our eyes. And frees us from our bondage to slavery to sin to turn to him in trust. And the the predestination part of that is that God places his hand on particular people to free their hearts to turn towards him in faith. Uh, the question that I've been pondering for the last hour since skimming that conversation, is why does it matter? Why? And I think it was Eric also. Somebody pointed out that, and this is really relevant to where we are in school with the kids because we just read about the Wesley brothers. And the book that we read emphasized more their own conversion, which was they were they were doing missionary trips to the United States, their English, and totally failing, were totally discouraged, And neither of them, it turns out, was actually a true believer. And they ended up meeting, oh man, I can't remember. They On their boat ride back, they met people, I can't remember if it was Lutherans or who, but they met people who explained to them the actual gospel for the first time because they were drawn to these people's joy in their worship. They They were preaching the Bible, but it was lacking the gospel. And the the joy that they felt when they actually heard the real gospel and were converted is what led them, both Charles and John, 
to develop Methodism because they wanted to create methods to have other people have the same experience of true of a true gospel conversion that they had had. That's where Methodism came from. And and then they wrote all of these amazing hymns together, which include Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Oh for a Thousand Tongues to Sing, Christ the Lord is Risen Today. Those are all Wesley hymns. I can't remember which one. Anyway, so I just learned all of that with the kids this week. And then he mentions how it, oh, and then and then Charles Spurgeon. No, it wasn't Spurgeon, it was Whitfield, who we also recently learned about in in our readings with the kids. He he was doing these big open air. Oh, this is actually really fascinating. Whitfield. He's doing these big open air revival meetings that were part of the first great awakening although it wasn't called either the first great awakening or the great awakening at all at that point but he was doing these open air revival meetings and he was doing them open air for two reasons three reasons actually and he did this both in in England and he was garnering all this attention from people and then he went to America to do it and actually laid the foundation in a lot of ways for some of the unity that Americans experienced in in the Revolutionary War because the colonies were so different and so diverse. They were not unified at all the first couple of times that people like Benjamin Franklin tried to get the colonies to come together in order to have some sort of sway against the increasingly tyrannical British power that they were experiencing. So Whitfield passed off some of his revival meetings and some of his methods to the Wesley brothers. And he, and apparently Spurgeon also supported the Wesleys. And this is where maybe it was Eric, maybe it was somebody else pointed out. Spurgeon was very, very stalwart Calvinist reformed man. And the Wesleys clearly were not. And Spurgeon's response to the difference in theology and his support for them was, I pray that I'm always humble enough to not think that I have all the right answers. Because when we get to heaven, it's very possible that they will have read scripture correctly and I will have not. I don't, I don't think I have, but I'm, I want to be humble enough that I leave that open as, an, as a possibility. And then also, I, I know that they will be in heaven and based on their passion and their holiness, they will probably be closer to the throne than I will. And, you know, just that humility in saying we have deep theological differences, but we're on the same team. And I can respect and admire what these people are doing who disagree with me. And, okay, making a mental note to come back to why does believing in predestination matter? George Whitfield, he was... He would preach in open air meetings because that didn't confine him to the number of people who could fit in one little church. Remember, colonial churches weren't mega churches of our day. They were, they basically fit the number of people who were of that stripe of Christianity in that town. And he drew people, so many people, he didn't want to be confined to that number of people. So he would hold open air meetings. That also meant that he wasn't confined to a particular stripe or denomination of Christians. And so in the open air, you know, the Quakers aren't going to go to something at the Anabaptist church, but in the open air, it's not discriminating. Everyone who hears about it can come. And he, Whitfield, 
was I, tr- I was trying to explain to the kids how incredible this is, and I don't think they quite got it. But he once spoke without modern day amplification to a crowd of 30,000 people, and they could all hear and understand him. Could you imagine having that much lung power? Maybe he didn't. Maybe it was Jesus miraculously causing something to happen. Something. He apparently was blessed in English with such a tremendous set of lungs that he could speak to massive crowds and they could all hear and understand him. He also was a bit of a marketing genius because he made friends with the newspaper people and he let them in. He let them publish pages of his diaries and he would tell them that I'm coming and do a newspaper story about me. And because he was such a, he was basically the first American celebrity or the first celebrity in America. And so people are like, oh, this famous preacher's coming to town. They would buy newspapers to learn more about when he was coming. So he sold papers. So the newspaper people are happy to give him all of this promotion. Mm -hmm. And then he would let people know that he was coming to town a couple days ahead of time. And because he was such a celebrity... All of a sudden, all of these colonies that were founded for different reasons and attracted very different types of people who had their own very hard commitments that had led them to this crazy hard life that they had when they came to the new land, they their common affinity for and interest in Whitfield drew them together in a way that Benjamin Franklin, with his very articulate articulate pleas to the leaders of the colonies, could not do. They were not ready to be unified politically, but they became unified culturally through the preaching of George Whitfield. I just thought that was really fascinating, too. I didn't know that about him huh. or about American history. Okay. Going back to the why does predestination matter as a belief, so I've just kind of made the case, agreeing with people on the Telegram page, that it's not an ultimate belief, and it's not something that you should come to blows with, but I think it's a tremendously powerful thing to see in Scripture because it teaches you, if I didn't do anything for God to choose me, to call me to himself as his child, that means that I can't do anything to have him unchoose me or reject me. I mean, certainly we walk in faith. In Ephesians 2, we do the good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. And we do that out of the joy of our new identity in Christ and who we are and knowing that that if we operate according to the to the design of the Creator— we will function best. But at the same time, we get this tremendous comfort in not living in fear or anxiety that we're somehow less loved by God because we're not successful Christians or that we are in danger of being less loved by God if we happen to slip up or that our suffering, and this is actually a tricky one, that our suffering is the result of our sinful choices. And the reason I say it's tricky is because sometimes it is. Sometimes for sure our suffering is the result of our sinful choices. Just last night we were being taught on the book of Judges and in the cycle of Israel sinning, rejecting God, forgetting God, 
falling into deeper and deeper sin, God hands them over to the pagan nations to be oppressed very clearly because of their sin. Same thing in the exile. Their exile was a result of sinning against God. So you're suffering both on a spiritual level and on a just natural consequences level, for sure, can be the result of sin. But I think more, what scripture teaches more, is to live in confident and joyful obedience, knowing that if you screw up, either externally or internally, you're not in danger of a of a God who thought you were good enough and now doesn't. And, and I don't think that's how an Armenian would articulate it, but I'll just say this from a parenting perspective. I try to give my kids assurance of salvation as frequently as I can. And yeah, that goes even for kids who have not professed of their own faith in Christ to assure them that Here's, here's what you do to be saved. In fact, just the other morning in doing our catechism, I can't remember what shorter Westminster Shorter Catechism question we're on, but the question is, in what, cons- what is the misery, what is miserable about man's sinful condition? And the we the, essentially the answer is we lost fellowship with God and are subject to God's curse and anger. And we are subject to the pains of this life, to death itself, and to the pain or the suffering miseries of this life, and to the pains of hell forever. And one of our kids got this really big when I read that that the pains of hell forever, her eyes got really big and she was like, Do I have to worry about the pains of hell forever? And I said, No, you don't actually have to worry about it. And I'm not that familiar with the catechism, mm-hmm. but I was like, I bet the next answer, and sure enough, the next answer says that almost from the moment of man's first sin, God promised a redeemer. And, you know, the kids know, they know how you get forgiven by your for your sins by Jesus. But I think that this constant reminder that you don't have to worry about the pains of hell forever, because if you turn to Jesus in repentance and in faith, you are saved. This is the promise that God holds out to you. No matter how many times you sin, no matter what else you believe about the Bible, at heart, trust in the Lord that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and his blood covers over all of your sins. And that saves you. That frees you from worrying about the pains of hell forever. And I think that we as we niggle over theology and some of us enjoy doing that more than others, I think we have to keep in mind the ultimate point of, I mean, just going back the, the point of the Heidelberg catechism, which the famous, what is your only comfort in life and in death? The point of that was it was written to afflicted Christians. And the whole point of the entire Heidelberg catechism is to comfort and you, the the way that all of these questions are framed are extremely pastoral and very comforting. And my only comfort in life and in death is that I'm not my own, but I belong body and soul to my Savior, Jesus Christ. And I can't remember the rest of it off the top of my head, but 
But that's that's what we point people to. The gospel, as I can't remember who who famously said this, but the gospel should afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And whomever you're talking to, you use all of the theology that you know in your head to those two points. And quite frankly, you could say one thing and it will afflict the comfortable and it will comfort the afflicted because they're at different places in their own hearts. Yeah. To me, some of that, some of this question kind of came down to the fact that if, if, if God didn't absolutely positively control everything, then at some point he ceases to be God. Yeah. And then I've got better things to do with my time than worship a God. Or do you? Well, then to, (laughs) then to worship a God who's not like, Really all-powerful. Yeah. Really I mean, all in control. Yes. The, the point, though, that I just, I mean, what I, like, or do you, is what is the point to everything if if we lose hope in having a God right. who is, I mean, somebody pointed out not too long I'm gonna ago. I'm going to live for myself. When, when that football player whose name is escaping me, and I probably wouldn't pronounce it properly anyway, collapsed on the field, the reaction of so many people was prayer. You know that phrase, there's no atheists in foxholes. When when push comes to shove, deep in our hearts, we want to know that there is a God for to whom our prayers matter. And, well, that's one, to whom our prayers matter, but who can actually do something about our prayers and our affliction. And, I mean, that gets into a whole other uh, thing I've been wrestling with. <clears throat> On so, how, much, how much we can... Not influence, but our prayers, you know. Yeah. Our, Prayer is always a struggle for me, you know, asking a, God you, to I mean, heal, just this morning, to protect. Just this morning. Was it this morning? Or was it last night? It was this morning. Abraham and Abimelech. Remember when Abraham comes into um, the valley there, you know, Moab, Abimelech is the king, and Abraham goes... You're my sister. If you're my wife, <laughs> if you're my wife, they'll murder me, take you anyway. So just tell them you're my sister. And he and Sarah agree to this. Sarah does that. God's like, Abimelech, you're a dead man for taking somebody else's wife. And Abimelech's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, hang on here. Hang on here. God, are you? I didn't know. That's what she told me. That's what he told me. Are you really going to punish me for my innocence in knowing this? And God's like, okay, since you didn't touch her, I won't, uh, I won't punish you. And I want you to know that it was me who prevented you from touching her this whole time. <laughs> and it's like, there was a blanket statement. God said, you're dead. And then he's like, no, he appeals to God. And God's like, okay, okay, I'm not going to murder you. Uh, but just so you know, you know, and so I wonder... There's obviously that element in our theology. I mean, God is a, he's a just and holy God. He's in control and everything else. And, um, and he has a, he's relational. Like, I think that's the important piece there. He, he relates to us. He understands us. We can appeal to him. We can have a relationship with him and all of those facets, but understanding. And I think, um, it was Dinah on the telegram group who pointed this out very well, that, because he's God, he can hold both of these seeming mm-hmm. uh, incompatible, um, incompatible things in harmony. Yeah, and that's because he is God. 
you know, it might be one of those mysteries. It's like the mystery of the Trinity. It's there throughout scripture, but it doesn't really make sense and my brain can't comprehend it. I think another element of that, that just this morning I was doing our Bible study on Philippians and I'm not sure what verses it is towards the end of chapter one. And Paul says, I pray, I trust in your prayers and God's help for my deliverance. And then, and then we've got the whole, whether, is it better to die and be with Christ or is it better to stay here, which is better for you? And, you know, and then we get the famous for to me to live as Christ is to, and to die is gain. And, and the, the question in the Bible study says, what to, what does Paul mean by deliverance? And of course, the right answer is, well, it's deliverance from his change, but not in the way that we necessarily expect, right? He's going to be delivered from his chains, whether he dies in prison or is executed or whether he's freed and can come back to the Philippians. But Paul very specifically says a couple verses later, I remain so that I, th- I think I'm going to stay alive so I can come to you again. I think that the deliverance Paul is confident in praying for is actual release from his chains because he talks about physically seeing the Philippians. He says, so that I may come to you again. He's not talking about coming to them as a ghost. Um, he's actually talking about coming to see them again. And and so holding Paul is able to perfectly hold intention, at least in his inspired writings, this sincere prayer for something that we now know on the flip side, God said no to. He's praying and hoping with full confidence through the prayers of the Philippians and the power of the Holy Spirit that he will be freed from his chains to come see the Philippian church family again. At the same time, he's got this whole inward, you know, this whole interlude in between that where he's able to say, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I win either way. I'd like to stay and remain and minister to you guys. Going to see Christ is better by far. And so he's got this whole inward battle while at the same time being confident that God can and will answer his prayer to be physically freed from his chains. That's how I read it anyway. And it it makes me think about praying for someone's healing. We've been praying earnestly for a friend of Titus's, the son of a dear friend of mine who was in a skiing accident. And if you live in our area, you probably know exactly who that is. And and to pray sincerely for full healing and for fast healing and for relief from pain and things like that, while at the same time resting, because God is a relational God and he loves us, resting in his sovereign plan, which is possibly different than what we hold out hope for here on this earth. And I feel like we have these conversations every couple of months, but just the challenge of asking God for things sincerely that he may say no to, but not being afraid to ask for them anyway. And I, And that, in contrast to, I know we've brought this up every now and then, a couple of years ago, the daughter of the worship leaders in the Bethel Network, and they had worship services and prayed for, I don't know, six or seven days straight that this little girl would would come back to life. And and the 
the earnestness of their prayers was different because of i i don't know just the 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 mis how misguided their sincere belief that god was going to raise this little girl from the dead and yet james says ask in faith without doubting <laughs> uh because if you doubt that god can and will do things for you 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 don't have a firm foundation you don't have faith to begin with so i don't know i don't have good answers here <laughs> But the the life of faith, it does make me feel kind of tossed around when I try to sort these things out. And then you just have to go back to the very basics, which is Christ died for my sins. I can't do anything to negate that. And I can lean into that with hope for eternity, no matter what happens here on this earth. Yeah, there you go. And uh, with that, we're going to we're going to call it a day, call it an episode, call it a week. (laughs) Um, if you guys want to interact, like we've talked about the telegram group, um, if you want to interact with that group, a great group of people, you can do so with using the link in the show notes. Um, it's a private group and, uh, jump on there and join the conversation. If you'd like to give us some feedback, otherwise you can send us an email at tb2f at pm.me. That's tb, the number two F at papamike.me, or you can go to our website again at tb2f or too busy to flush all grammatically correct. Too busy to flush.com. Scroll all the way down. There'll be a postcard option. You can send us a postcard. And while you're there, don't forget to order some People Are Weird and Hard stickers. They're good for your water bottles, your hats, your stickers, your coffee mugs, your laptops. Um, your stickers, your coffee mugs? You, it's a sticker good for your stickers. Um, but yeah, you can order those on our website as well. We still have plenty left. And. Um, Grab one of those and let people know how weird and hard you are. Because that's what it actually means. Is that it's kind of pointing back to ourselves. Recognizing that we are really weird and hard. Um, which is funny. You know, I bring that up. We talk about that all the time on Ski Patrol because we're always dealing with people. And I was like, people are weird and hard. You know? And they kind of, a couple people kind of look at me funny. And I'm like, well, you know, talking about how weird and hard I am. I'm weird and hard. And they always, without doubt, oh, dude, I'm super weird. It can be really hard to deal with. Everybody gets it. It's really fun. Um, So anyway, that said, it's been great being here with you guys this week. And um, look forward to more conversations moving forward. Have a great week.